Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. I think now you have to be a coach, a people person, a decision maker, and someone with strong focus, and all these different skills. You can't just be an autocratic leader now. You might have been a few years ago, but you can't now. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Tim Desmond. Tim's the CEO of the National Football Museum in Manchester. He joined me recently to talk about leadership, culture and purpose, and the lessons he learned whilst developing his career. Tim began his career as a drama teacher before recognising a passion for leadership and developing a career in the charities and arts sector. Tim shares the lessons he learned from the heavy sacrifices he's made and how to be receptive of those around you in order to shape your own leadership style. Tim shares his insights on his journey and the challenges that he's overcome as a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Tim. It's great to have you with us. Great. Um, Thanks very much for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to speaking with you and looking forward to learning more about your journey into leadership. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the organisation that you lead, please? So we're the National Football Museum uh, and um, the... uh, the writing is on the tin as such. You know, we're based in Manchester. We're 21 years old. Uh, we were set up in Preston originally at Preston North End, and then we moved to Manchester 11 years ago. Um, it's just the right city to have a national football museum. It's very much um, a football city, and the highest percentage of international visitors um, come because of football. Primarily because of Manchester United, but also just because of the identity of football. So it means a lot to Manchester in terms of football. And that's why, in a way, um, the leadership of Manchester City Council, who are our core funder, uh, wanted to bring us to Manchester, um, as I said, 11 years ago. We are a museum, but I'll probably talk more about it. But we're also very much a cultural organisation. And we've just got um, national portfolio status with the Arts Council which starts in um, March, which means that we're part of the cultural portfolio um, around their strategy, which is let's create. Um, So I speak to quite a few people that say about memorabilia. Yes, we we do hold memorabilia here, but it's people's creative response to that, the activities we do with the community, people's engagement with stories, Mm -hmm. uh, and as a platform to explore football in a different way. So we're unlike other football museums in terms of, yes, we do have objects on display, historical objects, but it's also about people's engagement. Uh, And finally, we're a national football museum, so we don't tell the story of one club in isolation. We do put a focus on the English national teams, and that's an important part of it in terms of it's not just about the men's elite game, it's the whole spectrum of football, and particularly in the last few years, Uh, the women's game, but we also tell the story of the English professional leagues and grassroots football. So we're very kind of democratic in that response. Fantastic. Fantastic. And so the organisation has been running for 11 years. You've been there for around five and a half almost. Well, it's been running 21 years, but in Manchester, 11 years. And I've been here, to my surprise, uh, just in terms of time, um, five and a bit years. Obviously, nearly three years of those, you could argue, have been covid so like a lot of your conversations, um, I don't think you can underestimate uh, the challenge of COVID. 
so five years um but kind of possibly two and a half years in practical normal terms if there's such yeah. a thing and potentially feels like 10 after what you came through with covid i don't know it's, just, it's really difficult yeah it's 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 a blur in a way in terms of yeah. the chronology of it all uh and there's an element of before and after but there was a big chunk of the challenges of running a cultural organization during a time when actually cultural organizations were closed for mm -hmm. chunks of it so yeah. yeah it's time is is lost on me a bit really it is it's a, the last few years i've been a bit of a blur but i was speaking with a um, chief people officer recently and they were talking about uh, hr professionals generally and, and it's true of all professions but i think having come through the pandemic you find that people that maybe have only got three years chronological experience but actually they've maybe gained five or six years experience because of the depth of the challenges that they've come up against and the exposure that they've had to challenges mm. no interesting yeah no interesting i bet everybody's got a different view mm. but yeah i i see it as lost years um okay. however um yeah there was a, a weird and wonderful time um, when we were managing our way through it yeah, yeah. you started to ask yourself um kind of questions about well do we need culture um and what is the value of culture um and can people live without it and so there are all those elements when we're effectively running a closed museum um what was the value and i think um that's not a bad thing because i think we do really need to ask ourselves it has to have a, a value to it and mm -hmm. i've got a very strong view of the social purpose of museums i don't believe in art for art's sake mm -hmm. so i do think it's a time to take stock of what actually makes a difference to people. Because if you don't make a difference to people, you, you know, why are you here um, uh -huh. is the question. So I think we, we do need to answer that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting challenge. And I wonder if through COVID, was there an element of what is physically required? Because you must have been able to deliver access to some of the, those stories that you talked about the stories that are created around football were you able to deliver or enable access to those stories online or well when when uh you know when it sunk in and we started to be introduced to kind of mediums like how we're talking at the moment mm -hmm. there was a massive focus on digital and so right across the museum sector there was a lot of digital activity and in theaters you know they showed kind of films of the plays that have been put on and I look back on that now and I think, again, were we creating digital um, to illustrate our value? Did people really need it and want it? Um, and so I think you have to kind of look at it critically. Having said that, um, we did, yes, try to reach out to people and um, very much focus on our mission, which is sharing stories about football. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we did do virtual exhibitions. We did a number of podcasts. Um, I start to think about um, how we access people in different ways. One of the, the most meaningful areas was around, we've, we have a session called Sporting Memories, which is a, an organisation which works with people um, over the age of 50. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it draws together. Quite often, you could call people isolated males. Uh, and creating uh, a bit of a network for them to talk about football. Um, but also, of course, men 
um, arguably aren't so great at building social networks. So it acts as a real support system. So our sporting memory session, uh, and there's sporting memory sessions across the country linked with football. Ours was probably one of the more successful because we maintain that during the lockdown periods, probably when people needed it at its most. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actively encouraged that. Um, and people spoke on Zoom, on telephone, and we had a way of, you know, catching up with people and communicating with them. So whilst we endeavoured to do a lot of digital activity, some of it hit home more strongly than others. Mm-hmm. And that's no criticism of us or how we were operating or anybody else in culture, because we were making it up as we went along, weren't we? Yeah. But what we re- what we realised, which you probably knew already, is our big um, purpose here is a platform to share stories about football and there is a great need to do that and do it in a creative human engaging way and that's really strengthened that purpose because as a a museum that's open to the public a lot of the time it's people wanting to come and talk about football and our visitor experience team are people that like talking about football and sharing stories about football and offering opportunities about football and um whether you love it or hate it, football has got such a rich um, seam of conversations mm-hmm. and stories. And it isn't just in the past. It, well, it, it could be what's happening this week. And just anecdotes. I mean, I've got a million anecdotes. And I've got limited time with you. But one of them was uh, we had um, last year two guys coming in who were visiting from the Ukraine. And this was just about the time when things were starting to really hit home in Ukraine and for whatever reason they were in Manchester and they were talking to one of our visitor experience team and I asked him did they speak about the war and their experience and he said to me well no they wouldn't want to would they They want to come and talk about football and I thought that was really telling that absolutely you know they were here from the Ukraine but they wanted to talk about football in Ukraine and football in England because let's face it they they didn't want to talk about the war and I thought that says a lot about our purpose. Um, yeah. Not a political organisation. We're about mm-hmm. football, um, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't deal with contentious issues. But football is in escapism. It's also about identity. So yeah. whilst they're proud of their Ukrainian identity and their their you know their football teams, yeah, why would they want to talk about you know those elements in this environment? So yeah. that's the wonderful thing about football. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well when you, you're speaking and saying it's a platform, but it's also a place. I would imagine there was never an inkling that you were going to close the actual museum down and go fully digital because that something would be lost, wouldn't it? And not being able to bring people together to share those stories physically, tangibly. It is, and it's stimulating. I mean, the, the, you know, our objects and our resources here stimulate debate uh, mm-hmm. and stimulate responses. And we have you know, penalty shootout area where people can take penalties within the Wembley goals. And football wouldn't be football without kicking a ball. So there is that playful yeah. element of it. Uh, and we are increasingly going to have digital interactives. We have, you know, elements of that in the museum already. Uh, but it's a, it's a combination, isn't it? And you can yeah. do that online. But I think um, one of the strengths is the physical um, of the organization and we 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 do more social media we do more podcasts we you know we have a more active website but there's mm-hmm. nothing like a physical space as you said yeah yeah absolutely and so beyond covid then what kind of challenges are you up against as a leader of that kind of organization that's just come through something like the pandemic um i think the biggest one um that's really struck me and it strikes me um 
increasingly is well-being and mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never known um, anything like it in terms of behaviours have changed and did change. And you've got to recognise a massive trauma for our staff. Um, a number of the visitor experience team were on furlough because, you know, physically they couldn't do yeah. anything. And then there were a number of team members that were working through the pandemic, creating content, um, doing their particular roles from home. So people's well-being and mental health has, has definitely suffered. And we've put in um, a greater accent on um, well-being and mental health sessions within the museum with our team, uh, well-being mental health sessions with our visitors as well. Um, we brought in a kind of full-time um, HR manager, whereas before we had actually online HR support and internal support, that wasn't enough coming out of COVID. Mm -hmm. So I would say those are big, big challenges because people's behaviours, some maybe subtly, but have changed. And I think there is a real legacy of well-being and mental health problems uh, that we probably haven't taken stock of. And what I'm very conscious on a personal level, but also professional level, it's more challenging to get a doctor's appointment now. You know, it's more challenging to get support quite possibly mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. And therefore, you know, people's well-being and mental health is brought into the museum, but also built into the work environment. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that is a big, big challenge. And it's great that we have started to really think about how we improve it. But um, part of it, we, our provision wasn't adequate, um, okay. you know, post-COVID, and we probably didn't recognise that. The other side of it is we're very competitively priced. You pay for your ticket, you say £11 for an adult. You can come mm -hmm. back as many times as you want during the year. So it's affordable when you look at buying a loaf of bread or a pint of beer. Mm -hmm. uh, you would you would hope, and we're free to Manchester City residents um, as well, and we offer free okay. places to a number of different groups. However, the cost of living crisis will affect people's ability to travel because, mm -hmm. face it, going on trains, petrol is cost a lot of money, and then staying overnight will cost a lot of money. So, kind of, there is a challenge there for us and everybody else. And then the other obvious one is our utilities are going through the roof despite the government intervention. So, running the museum will cost a lot more. You know, we're going through pay negotiations with the union at the moment. There is a big expectation for increased um, offers in terms of pay. You know, our, our income isn't going up, um, and therefore that is a challenge. So running a, a visitor attraction museum business, our grant from the council has been quite reasonably reduced down over the last few years. So running the organisation is a lot harder financially. Mm -hmm. Everything's got to run leaner, I guess, which has then a knock-on effect. Well, we were incredibly lean because you were saying about my um, time here, five and a half years ago, I started at a time where there was a crisis with our organisation in terms of sustainability uh, because our grant had been reduced and we were struggling to survive. Um, we brought in a charging model, which made a massive amount of difference um, to our sustainability and resilience. And had we not done that, I think we would have been in massive problems when COVID hit because we had a year's charging before COVID hit, we mm -hmm. applied for a, um, a cultural recovery fund grant from Arts Council, which preserved our reserves because the first time in our history, we'd built up reserves. So, um, you know, we'd done the lean 
period and we'd really readjusted our business model we're now kind of investing in the business to because recognize that we need to draw more income in Mm -hmm. so it's about getting more visitors making our shop work um, more strongly looking at digital and how we can bring in kind of income from it so we're, we're going for a kind of investment model now interesting enough because we're already running a tight ship in uh-huh. terms of our management um, of it and actually when you know our utilities bill go up exponentially there's there's not a lot you can do about that um you know so that is that is the point i guess mm-hmm. yeah it's interestingly now about investment and trying to improve our efficiencies okay increase our revenue and make ourselves more attractive to yeah. visitors okay and and can you tell us a bit about your journey into leadership then? Because I was having a look through your your background and part of the reason why I wanted to have a conversation was because of where you sort of started. And I'm really interested in how that progressed into the CEO role. Was it always going to be the case that you were leading an organisation or was that quite an organic process? Well, just a kind of a kind of potted history, but I, um, I did uh, a drama and English degree um, at Loughborough University and I was very interested in theatre. I wasn't quite sure what path within theatre and I worked in theatres, um, you know, when I was at school, you know, as a kind of Saturday job working at the Victoria Apollo in London, um, selling programmes. Um, and I really enjoyed the world of theatre. I enjoyed acting and direction mm-hmm. and everything else. I did a drama degree and then um, started to recognise through that experience theatre and education and so I did a lot of touring productions going around the country um, doing theatre and education. And I really enjoyed that kind of way of engaging particularly children, young people in that. Mm. Um, that then led to um, doing that professionally and working then in art centres um, in Ireland and England. And I spent a few years in Dublin um, mm. within that kind of area. Then kind of at a point recognised actually that didn't pay a lot of money uh, and I needed to have an income, you know, really a kind of steady income. Mm -hmm. And so I went into teaching and kind of more by accident rather than purpose, because in terms of leadership, leadership wasn't factored into any of that. I just enjoyed um, the medium of drama and theatre and recognised education and kind of some element there, although I didn't realise it at the time of social justice and engaging communities that had limited access to the arts. Uh, But kind of almost by default, I became a head of drama. And um, teaching was always something that was relatively short term because I wanted to kind of find other ways to do it. I thought if I get teaching qualification, uh, then it'll enable me to access different areas of education beyond schools. Mm-hmm. So I got to head of drama. And I didn't really want to be a. I didn't want to be a head teacher. I didn't want to be, um, uh, you know, any kind of progress within education. Um, and, and I don't know. I've not really factored in that. But I left teaching um, and um, moved into museums. And then within museums, it was education. So I had an education mm-hmm. manager's role. And my take on it, I'm not a museum professional in terms of um, academic background, but I saw museums as a great space to facilitate and deliver education. Yeah. Uh, but one of my um, managers um, said, why don't you do um, some management training uh, and have that experience? And I did a Dale Carnegie um, mm-hmm. course and it was it was um, 
I have to say, uh, a, a kind of a bit of a light bulb minute, um, moment, which actually for the first time, and I still do it to this day, I do a, an annual, I don't know if you'd call it a, a business plan, but I have a vision board and I have mm-hmm. an annual plan of what I want to achieve professionally and personally, which came out of Dale Carnegie. And so it ignited um, an ambition to lead and manage, which wasn't there before. And though I was like kind of education manager and I was managing people, I, I didn't really see leadership and recognise uh, the opportunities and the kind of directive and drive to lead. So that kind of changed everything, really. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of gravita- graduated through senior management to become a, a, a kind of CEO and then also quite a lot of roles on boards um, within the Arts Council and mm-hmm. within museum sector, Speakers Corner Trust I was involved with as chair in, in Nottingham um, and business forums. And I've suddenly found I light actually leading, although mm-hmm. I never saw that in myself at all. And just anecdotally, I was on um, a course called Future Proof Museums a few years ago, which was bringing middle managers together um, and kind of investing in leadership skills and recognising the difference between management and leadership. Uh, And um, on the first day, it was a kind of very much kind of um, intense course set in Cambridge for three days and you went away and then you came back for a period of time. So it's very immersive. But on the first day, we'd done some kind of... um, psychometric tests and uh, it wasn't insights training but it was something like that and I was with this group of people and I thought oh god they were the most um, controlling group of people that that I'd met in that whole cohort group and I thought I don't want to be with these people for three days and I was put into a group with them and I had this terrible fear I thought oh god this is going to be my experience in the course and they were all the people that were quite um, demonstrative about their ideas and wanting to do this and that and then to my horror the, um, the the person that was running it said that they put you into groups with people that shared the same characteristics as you and what was really interesting then is is that world of we've just done an insights training here um, mm-hmm. but your different characteristics and recognizing that I probably have a greater need for con- control and leadership uh, than I had in fact realised and therefore that's got to be part of it if I'm being brutally honest is wanting to lead on your ideas but I hope that I balance that out um, and manage that so I'm not a kind of control freak I don't think. But the first step is being aware of it I guess isn't it that level of self-awareness to to recognise that. Yeah, when your manager originally suggested that you'd look at that management training, the Dale Carnegie thing, was that sort of, did you begrudgingly go along or did they ignite the flame or did the course ignite the flame? Where did, where did it happen? I'm not sure if I begrudgingly went on it, but I just thought I wasn't, you know, I, I looked around me and it wasn't for like museum people. It was for business people and a variety of different people from different backgrounds. And I'd kind of, I suppose, um doing drama i'd never wanted to be a a business person you know the thought of being an accountant or you know a professional business person Mm -hmm. with horror you know i I was a drama student at university 
you know, I never wanted to belong to a club or anything like that. So, you know, and I had those prejudices, probably that you'd call it, wouldn't you? So sitting around with some business people, I thought, oh, this isn't really for me. Um, however, um, obviously, once I'd, not like I haven't got any friends at business people, and actually a lot of my friends at university were um, management accountants and engineers and everything else. But I'd always thought of myself as slightly different being from a drama background. But I suddenly recognised, you know, the value of business skills uh, mm. and the inspiration behind it, uh, and it also organisation skills. And I met somebody years later who'd done the course with me, Dells Carnegie, and what it has done is just made me a more organised, more process-led, more ambitious person. So I can't tell you a huge amount about the course, but what I did was just recognise actually running cultural organisations as businesses is exactly what you should do. Mm -hmm. uh, I started to enjoy that process and be more understanding of um, your peers and gain the most from whatever sector you can, because we're all doing the same thing, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And it, sometimes it's that fresh perspective, isn't it? There's how someone does something in a completely different industry applied to your own. Can yeah. be really powerful. No, definitely. And as you said, it's recognised people that have got different skills and experience to you uh, and valuing those and then having a leadership team that's got a great deal of balance to it. And I certainly, within the time I've been in museums, which is is funny enough, around 22 years now, is, um, you know, that there has been a real shift, I think, of having people from different backgrounds working in the museum sector rather than simply museum uh, academics. Obviously, there is a need for those within certain areas of museums, but it's having a blend of different skills, different experiences within your organisation. Yeah. Um, it's been a real change in the sector, not just for museums, right across the arts, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. It's good to have a balance of different people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely across all sectors. And in, yeah. in terms of your leadership style, then, how how has that evolved? Is that sort of your approach to leadership? Does that come from experience? Was it advice that you were offered? Are there figures that you've looked at in leadership and thought, I, I respect this element of your style? I think it's a, it's a combination of, of all of those and, you know, dare I say, your kind of psychological makeup and your background and your experience. So um, it, it's, a, it's a real blend of different things. And I don't think I've gone out looking for leadership uh, team examples, um, really. And I, I, I struggle to name them, although I, I probably could name one or two. What it's been more about is mentors, I think, um, okay. who have been really helpful. It's drawing out some of my strengths, but also uh, recognising some of my weaknesses and being more um, aware of yeah, looking around and getting the best out of other people, but also trying to get the best out of yourself. So, yeah, it's mm -hmm. been... Um, a kind of organic process and it's it's still very much like that because i come from a, an education background i'm i recognize the value of learning mm -hmm. uh, and you know without using it well using a cliche it never stops does it yeah, uh, yeah. I, think, yeah I could probably give you more examples uh, of of leadership than management that's been bad yes. um, and i probably learned as much from that as the mm -hmm. as good leadership but i think the, the worst kind are those people that um, are immune to what's going on around them mm -hmm. uh, and so i think you know you've you've got to look around you and learn and understand um and so you can apply that 
Absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of your insight, that's really valuable insight. If people were looking to follow in your footsteps, that's great advice for them to follow. But was there any advice that you would, that you sort of wish you were given earlier on in your leadership career or any advice that you would share with someone that was looking to either get started in leadership or was developing a career? Well, one of the things I'm, I'm really wondering is um, is that we, we we have our flow of life, don't we? And, and obviously everybody's different, but you have um, kind of an intense period, I would say, you know, where you are really focusing in on your career. Um, and um, for me, um, for a variety of personal reasons, um, I really focused on that period, uh, you know, for about of become when I became a CEO, but a couple of two or three years running into it, you know, once I'd had the training and everything else and started to have the ambition, work was everything to me. Um, and I did have a family and, I, and you know, actually um, I was a strong believer of making sure that I was always there for key events in my family's life. So I wasn't one of these workaholics that doesn't see the kids, but in terms of my personal life, I put work first a lot of the time. And I now look back on that and I don't regret that because I needed that intensity to be able to achieve what I wanted to achieve. But I look back on it now and think um, kind of actually, you know, work isn't life or death. Uh, and, and um, you know, you have to get the balance right between your personal and professional life. And I had a trustee because, you know, working for charities, obviously I worked with a number of trustees and he was a mm -hmm. very high achieving lawyer. But I remember getting a train back from, london with him one day and he was saying he was at a point in his life where he was he was he'd retired and he was doing trusteeship and a, a few projects and he said it's great because i'm spending time with my grandchildren and i never spent time with my own children and i always thought god that is a real tragedy you've really mm -hmm. lost something and i must admit so i'm not that extreme but i think probably i took work very very seriously and spent a lot of time and all my intellectual energy outside work focusing in on that so all weekend, not all weekend, but a lot of weekends, a lot of evenings, I was really thinking about work. And I think back now, I think maybe I didn't need to have done that. And the funny yeah. side of it was when I left my last job, and there's a bit of a story there, you know, I, I was, I had a burst ulcer, ended up in hospital. Um, and um, I, I, what I recognised was the organisation, to my surprise, could exist without me. And when I left, because I pretty much went into hospital, and that was towards the end of my time there, or at the end of my time there, and I was starting a new job. And I thought, um, kind of, actually, you are everybody's indispensable. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've got to recognise that. And we sometimes think we aren't, but we, we are. So in other words, get, get the, the balance right. It's not, unless you're a surgeon, a nurse, or a doctor, yeah. it isn't life or death, so... To do balance your life because you know life goes by very very quickly and mm -hmm. i think some people probably don't get that right um yeah. and just sorry just anecdotally you know so i was in hospital had a burst ulcer which was caused because i'd had some painkillers uh for my back and i'd taken them on an empty stomach and my uh with some aspirin and it basically it's like being shot but i was doing a um a lecture at nottingham trent university and i thought i was going to pass out um, I managed to kind of sit down, went to the loo, was, was throwing up blood, didn't really think it was blood, I wasn't oh thinking logically, carried on the presentation, went back to work, 
spoke to a friend of mine. They said, look, you need to go to the doctors and everything else. But to cut a long story short, I ended up collapsing and got in hospital. Um, and then was being treated in hospital, um, had four blood transfusions. And I remember going home after two weeks in hospital. And um, I I was at that point where I'd got, I was on sick leave, but also on a bit of leave before starting my new job, doing my exit notes from my last organisation and then preparing for a board meeting. And looking back on it now, I thought, you know, if anything in life, you should learn a lesson from yeah. I'd absolutely hadn't learned it. Uh, and, you know, what I'm noticing now with some of the younger generation is that they are putting their own well-being um, and their personal time far more advanced than possibly my generation. Now, and sometimes I think, well, hold on a minute, you need to balance it because you do need to put the work in. But at the same time, they're doing the right thing. Because mm. for my generation, probably especially having been a teacher where you went in, you know, whatever was going on in your life. Yeah. Um, actually, you don't get a medal for that. Um, and well, maybe you do sometimes, but that's not the point, really. You've got yeah. to get the balance right. Yeah. And I think in terms of balance as well, I think it's about understanding that life's full of seasons. Like sometimes you have to have that intensity, but it can only be temporary if you're putting those hours in, if it's something to get a big project finished or you know, you're yes. close to the wire. I think it is about recognising that there are seasons and you do need to drop your shoulder and get stuck in, as we sometimes say. Um, but it's got to come back. That that balance has to be there, doesn't it? Because like you say, nobody is, you know, nobody's completely indispensable. No, no, you're not. And somebody did say to me um, that I was married, that, you know, I was married to my job and I thought that seemed nonsense looking back on it. I probably was, and that's, yeah. you don't really want to be married to your job. No, 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 true. But I'm glad. I'm glad that that lesson's settled, and it seems that you've got the balance now. More of the balance well, now. Not, not as much as you think. And I have to, even talking to you now, I have to keep on reminding me myself about that. I have got more of a balance, yes, and I recognise it's not life or death, but um, it's quite a difficult habit to kick. Okay. But I do reflect on it, and I am trying. Okay. What kind of thing, just practically, are the suggestions, like tangible suggestions, tips that you could share that have helped you? Because that, that's something all leaders... Help me about being a leader? or No, not in terms of being a leader, but more in terms of finding that balance. And when you almost, I think most leaders have to almost, you have to check yourself. It goes back to that self-awareness. You have to check yourself and how, do I have enough balance? Is this yeah. sustainable? Are there tips that you'd share with the leaders well one of the things was that um in my in my last job i had a or one of my last jobs i had a chair who um was a high level lawyer and um he didn't have any boundaries in terms of you know he'd email me 10 o'clock at night and yeah and response he i always remember he kind of like he liked to speak to me at weekends um okay. and um so i remember one weekend he was speaking to me at 11 o'clock on a saturday morning and then he said, oh, it's been a really good meeting. Um, can we meet again tomorrow on Sunday? And I kind of, um, whilst I was, you know, as I say, very focused on my job, I resented that. Um, but I kind of put up with it. Um, and um, I responded to his emails and everything else. And my um, successor in the role um, apparently told him quite early on, well, my boundaries are, you know, I've, I, I look after my children at weekends uh, mm -hmm. and I finish work at six o'clock. 
And I thought, again, I thought, well, hold on a minute, you know, you need to be more flexible than that. However, she was right, wasn't she really? So setting boundaries for yourself, but other people, I think is is very, very key with that. And then just recognising that, you know, I've, I've had the experience, like I'm sure a lot of us have, of people I know dying prematurely uh, and everything else. And, and life is very, very short. Mm-hmm. So actually just being aware of, of that. I've learned now, I remember, you know, again, I can see myself picking up the phone on holiday, um, you know, and speaking to somebody by the pool about work and everything else. And I've stopped doing that now. Um, I used to have a work phone and a home phone. Now I have a, uh, sorry, I used to have a work phone, which was my home phone. Now I've got mm-hmm. two different phones. I'm much better now that than not looking at my phone and look, not looking at my email. Uh, but also that's more of the culture of our organisation as well. Uh, and I and I respond to that. And I remember our union negotiator saying to me, I was ill. And this was this was about four years ago. I was ill and I was doing my emails and she said, well, you're not setting a very good example. And I thought, Oh, again, I thought that was a bit harsh, but again, looking at it, she, she was right. So you, I, I learn from probably things being reflected back to me sometimes because I lack that self-awareness. So do listen to the people around you, set the boundaries uh, and recognise, you know, again, there's that phrase, isn't there? Somebody's on their deathbed and they don't regret how much time they didn't spend in the office. Yeah. yeah. Just things like that, you, you hear that, but when you start to really think about it is put all your energy into work um, when you're at work, but actually separate that out. The other side of it is um, I did a, another course and about actually recognising my personal approach. So, you know, I'm not great. If I'm not, I went on one, I had one mentor that said, you've got to get up at five o'clock in the morning. It's the best time of day. And to be successful, you've got to do that. doesn't work for me. You know, mm-hmm. I, if any time before seven ruins my day. So I realised my pattern is like half nine. I'm at my best probably between four and six. Mm-hmm. Uh, after seven starts to fall down. Um, working on process-driven work, Mondays and Tuesdays, creatively, um, Thursdays and Fridays, and, and meetings-wise, you know, it's a middle ground Wednesdays. If you can start to recognise what you're good at and what you're not, then you can balance it out. Yeah. Uh, and then being stimulated. So working from home for me all the time is not good for my well-being and my productivity. And I didn't really realise that fully until, you know, the lockdown. So it's, okay. it's, it's asking people and getting feedback on, on things is really, really helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given is manage your energy, don't manage your time. Because everybody's different. You can say, get up at five o'clock because it's the best time of the day, but everybody's different. And some people are yeah. night owls, aren't they, rather than, rather than morning people. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I also went, you know, I did this, um, there was a training session about introverts and extroverts. And up until that mm-hmm. point, I, I kind of thought the view that extroverts were great, lead, but a lot of leaders were, and I'm not an, an extrovert, um, mm-hmm. a lot of leaders are extroverts and you need to be an extrovert. And then I went on it and, rec- and recognised that, for the first time, and this was probably when I was 40, half the people are introverts, half the people are extroverts. Leaders are a mixture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds ridiculous and naive, but, you know, you you pick up some great instructions and learnings um, from different either anecdotal experiences or actual courses. So, mm-hmm. yeah, be receptive to those, I think. Mm-hmm. 
That's good advice. That's good advice. And and in terms of leaders that you particularly admire, then are there people sort of, and they don't necessarily have to be from your industry, but are there people past or present, famous or otherwise, that you particularly admired as leaders, or someone that you've taken something from during your journey? Kind of when when I knew you can ask me that question, and um, kind of I really struggle with that. Not because I haven't worked with good leaders, um, but I don't think of I don't think of it like that. I think of it more organically, and I also I've learned as much from kind of junior members of staff than I have from senior members of staff, to be honest okay. with you. And I'm very interested in that side of it because just because somebody chooses to be a leader, um, you know, they they probably have greater weaknesses than other people, and and as much as greater strengths um, within leadership. It, and every and everything isn't about leadership. Mm-hmm. But in terms of my career, um, the the person that had the biggest effect on me um, was Di Lees, who is the currently the director general of the Imperial War Museum, and actually is stepping down, I think, in next month. She was my first CEO in museums, and she's very very focused individual, uh, a very giving individual in terms of her team her support for the team, her feedback. And although I only worked with her for six months, she kept in contact with me. She was always there for advice. She's achieved fantastic things in terms of being a woman in leadership, um, you know, within a quite a male-dominated leadership team sector, as was within museums. Um, but she kind of was was a great inspiration. Um very tough uh, and strong, uh, but also very personable and human and and, and aware mm-hmm. of what she's achieved. Great capital projects, brilliant fundraising, driven organisations. She's done a lot of non-executive roles, but um, listens to people and engages with people. And uh, so she's had the biggest effect. I mean, interesting enough, I can't tell you anything that she ever said to me specifically apart from one thing. And again, this thing, this thing actually, you could read into it different ways, but it was after an event uh, we had. And um, I was, I'd, you know, re- relatively just started. I, I kind of went along and got involved in clearing up the event and I was picking up plates and everything else. And she said to me, don't do that. You're not paid to do that. You know, your job is to manage. Now, I probably still do help out in respects like that, but I'm also aware of time and actually applying your skills to what you really should be applying for. And what she was probably saying in that environment was actually you should be networking and representing the museum. Mm-hmm. But she was she was directive, but had a clarity. Uh, and I don't know, that just struck me as interesting because it toughened me up a bit because up until that point, I would always be kind of helping out with everything and yeah. trying to maybe in trying to please other people and be supportive but that was an element of focus and she was very um tough sounds a negative it's not meant to be mm-hmm. she expected a lot from you um but equally gave you a lot back as well so mm-hmm. yeah whilst i'm saying i'm struggling for leaders um she really stands out to me as someone i have utmost respect for i think and then I've had a lot of, and, and you know, as I said, I can tell you some bad leaders, and I'm not going to do that in great, great detail. But mm-hmm. that you know, I've had some very autocratic alpha male leaders, and mm-hmm. 
for for whatever reason, I, I really struggle with those type of individuals. Uh, and if it goes back to being at school, I don't know what it is, but I struggle with yeah. that. And I had one particular, you know, kind of line manager leader who I really didn't get on with very personally. Uh, we didn't get on very well generally, or uh, apart from when we were on our own together, when we got on absolutely fine. So it's kind of funny in a way. But looking back on it, um, I recognised that he had some good, very good leadership team skills. So whilst I characterised him as someone I didn't like, etc., there was some elements of him that I thought actually were very good. But it took me, you know, years afterwards to recognise those. Yeah. And one of them was that he would—he was very good at making decisions. So he'd always be there and make a decision. And I'm someone that struggles with decisions, and I go away and reflect on it and think about it. And the thing with him is half the time he got it wrong, I would say, and half the time he got it right. But he he led by example and he made decisions. I like to think I probably get it right more often than I get it wrong. But mm -hmm. I spend ages deliberating on that. And, and I think actually sometimes you need to just make a decision. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it goes back to what I was saying before. In other words, some of the, the lead, people that you wouldn't say are great leaders, they've got elements of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a leader. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And I I think that's one of the key elements of being a good leader is taking all those influences. And like you say, from either junior employees, people that are earlier in their career, people that are in completely different sectors and taking those influences and almost being a filter for all those experiences and taking what works for you and your organisation. I think I, I think that's that's the premise of, of being a good leader these days because information is everywhere, isn't it? Like we can all learn the traits of a good leader. We can all learn the leadership models, but actually it's your authentic take on your experience of the world and how you bring that into your own organisation, I think, is what makes you powerful as a leader. Yeah. And when I say powerful, I mean effective, not if, yeah, no, powerful. Effective, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and so in terms of, we spoke a little bit before we started recording about the, the books that you enjoy reading and what's influenced you in the past and the podcasts that you've, you've consumed. But can you share with the listeners some, if there's a book that's particularly influenced you or helped you in the past and, and let us know a little bit about why, please? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm a great one for buying books, or I, I used to actually, I've stopped doing it to a great extent now, and then not reading them. So I get, so I bought a book about how to declutter your house when I was moving, uh, and then never read it and gave it to a charity shop, which kind of says everything about it in a way. However, um, I was introduced to a book um, by a mentor, and as I said, um, I, I, I've found within my leadership period mentors and coaches invaluable mm -hmm. again I, you know i didn't say it earlier but in terms of getting advice is don't do it on your own and i was head of drama in a really difficult school i tried to do it all on my own it was it was a nightmare and looking back on it i really needed some support so i'm a big fan of coaches and one of the coaches that recommended this book called the chimp paradox mm -hmm. and it's it for me it's it's a great book that i i have close by me and I do keep on dipping into because it separates out the way you function around the chimp, which is your emotional side mm -hmm. with, um, you know, the human side and the computer side. In other words, some of it is, you know, from experience, some of it is kind of programmed into you and some of it is your gut reaction. And I recognize that all too often in my life, the chimp side, which is the emotional side, has has led now sometimes that's been a good thing uh but a lot of the time it's been a bad thing so 
And it's then about how to try and manage your approach to things and really think about it and get the best out of yourself and see what your key directives are. So the Chimp Paradox, um, it's a sports um, guy who's a sports psychologist. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite fascinated. I know I work in a football museum, but I'm quite fascinated by elite sports people um, and how they are driven and how they visualize things and how they look at achievement and everything else. So that's possibly what influenced me on it. And there's a, a new version, which I've literally just bought last week, um, called A Path Through the Jungle, which is a handbook. Um, I think it's Steve Peters who's written it, um, is a handbook to it. And I'm going to look at that and actually give you practical exercises because um, it will help improve my practice as a, as a human being, really, in a person and help manage um, how I go about things, how I think things, but also recognise, let's face it, it's not all about you, mm -hmm. how other people operate and when their chimp is operating and everything yeah. else and try and manage that. Absolutely. That sounds like a great tool. I think to, to have a workbook that sits alongside a book like that, I think could be really, really interesting. You'll have to let yeah. me know how you get on with it, whether yeah, it's valuable. No. I absolutely will too. Yeah. So no, it, it's drawing on drawing on that. Um, and you know, we talked about books, but as I said, kind of um, you, you can draw that from a variety of other mediums. Um, and as I said, within football, I didn't mention him earlier, but you know, it's more like Alex Ferguson uh, in Manchester United. Um, he came to the museum uh, for a new exhibition on Eric Cantona, had curated at the museum an art exhibition. And what struck me about him is he had time for people. He shook hands with people. He smiled. He engaged with everybody in the room. He had that grace. You wouldn't have thought that as a football manager. He was so strong. Yeah. But he's clearly got something much, much bigger than that. And Gareth Southgate, the England manager, the men's manager, again, is someone that's got a grace and a, a humility and engagement. But clearly does a good job with people as well mm -hmm. so i think now you have to be a coach um, um a people person a decision maker um and someone with strong focus and all these different skills yeah. you can't just be an autocratic leader now you might have been a few years ago but you can't now yeah it's got it definitely had its had its day hasn't it yeah That's for well. a good reason probably yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely Fantastic. And so can you share with us what's happening over the next six, nine or 12 months at the museum in terms well, of exhibitions or what's going on for you? Yeah, well, it, but during my time here, the, the first period of my time was restructuring the whole organisation and making it sustainable and bringing people in to enable that to happen. Coming out of COVID, we had to do a mini rebalance there and refocus. One of my biggest drivers is um, making the organisation more um more uh, um, balanced in terms of diversity and representation. Football obviously attracts a number of men. Boards uh, and and senior roles attract, and I know I'm one of them, men over a certain age who come from a certain background as well. You know, football is such a rich scene of diversity in the arts and culture. So, you know, that's a big drive for us is to reach out and make our content more diverse, but also our workforce and board. So we're on that journey. Um, and so we we did a lot of work around the women's uh, Euro success uh, and an exhibition there. We've got an art exhibition at the moment, uh, Michael Brown, who's a local artist, um, very classically trained, but from Moss Side in Manchester, so his background isn't like that at all, curated by Eric Cantona, the famous Manchester United footballer. So that's on for 
um, the, the next few months and will be a really good exhibition. In the summer, we've got a toys and games exhibition, which is really? football relating to toys and games and different experiences of that. We've become, as I've said, a national portfolio organisation with the Arts Council. So a lot of community engagement, a lot of creativity working with artists and mm -hmm. creatives uh, for them to respond through photography to the medium of football and bring their kind of side and ideas into it. Um, and then we've got stores in Preston and making those stores a, a much more accessible for research okay. so that people can understand more about football history. We've got this pledge to make 50% of our work around the women's game as much as the men's game. Yeah. It's a very exciting time for the women's game with England's mm -hmm. success in the Euros and hopefully England's success in the World Cup. Um, we're going to have um, an exhibition about the pioneers of the game um, from uh, players of colour coming up um, later in the year. Um, and that's going to be a great exhibition to really celebrate those. We've got a Hall of Fame um, uh, process within the organisation and it's rebalanced it so that we tell far more of the stories around, you know, the pioneers of the women's game. But also, you know, like we did one at West Ham recently about Jack Leslie, who was the first player of colour to be um, called up to the men's side, didn't get to play because the the the, the panel recognised that he was of colour and therefore didn't include him for playing with England, you know, so he never got that moment. Uh, and he, he spent the end of his, his life working with West Ham, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of there's their kit man effectively, and posthumously he was inducted to the Hall of Fame uh, on the West Ham pitch. Such a strong story there. Yeah. You've had Carol Thomas, one of the pioneers of the, the women's game, recognise one of the greatest England captains, um, we've had Karen Carney recognised for all the great work she's doing um, and she's involved with a white paper on women's football at the moment with the government and the panel but she was in our Hall of Fame as well so more inductions representing mm -hmm. that there are you know, no um, male professional footballers that um, are currently playing at the top flight there are now some recognition beyond that Justin Fashley was the, the you know the first mm -hmm. footballer to come out at the top level um, who sadly took his own life. We recognised him in the Hall of Fame. So it's telling people's stories and it, mm -hmm. it's about great footballers but great lives as well. So there'll be a lot more of those kind of um, taking place. And then we have our special exhibitions. We've got one on the Premier League 30th anniversary at the moment. Um, you know, we, we've had um, exhibitions around the great work that's done um, around the work of mind with mental health as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got some great photography exhibitions, uh, you know, from different creatives there. So, in other words, there's always something to come and see at National Football Museum mm -hmm. alongside our permanent exhibitions um, as well, celebrating the great footballers of the past and the great teams of the past. Uh, mm -hmm from the 66 period right through to the modern day. So, um, yeah, come along, experience it, um, buy a ticket, come back as many times as you like. Yeah, I will do. I will do. I've got a couple of nephews and a daughter that will definitely be interested in that. Yeah, and one of the great things, I mean, I was talking to somebody, you know, certainly my daughter, who's 24, played a little bit of football 
uh, with her friends as part of a, a, um, her local side, but they, you know, didn't play any football at school. And mm. there's been a bit of a revolution in that respect over the last few years. Mm. Football was banned for women, as you probably know, I'm sure you do know, for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of rebalancing there. And it's wonderful to see all these uh, young women and girls coming to the museum now and being yeah. key stakeholders in our museum. Well, I was telling my daughter just the other day, there was me and I think two other girls that the boys would let play football at, at junior school and there was no girls team. I think we were the first girls team at senior school. Yeah. And it's just different world compared to the world that my daughter's growing up in and the opportunities that she's got now. It's different, thankfully so, a different world. No, and it's as a museum, our job is to tell that story. Mm-hmm. And when, when we meet... Um, the kind of um you know some of the kind of the, the women players that um even the ones some of the ones that are still playing who had to kind of balance all their lives working families etc to then turn out and play football mm-hmm. um and there are those ones that played for england hundred you know like hundred odd times no one knows about yeah. massive pioneers and massive champions we can tell their story and give them the due recognition that's how you learn isn't it absolutely absolutely Tim, thank you for making the time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for, for sharing it with us. Yeah, no, my absolute pleasure. Nice to nice to meet you. And, and well done for your brilliant series. Thank you.